0: unconscious, not responding, something was going wrong with our boy. We didn't care what condition he was, all we wanted was our own boy back. 242, have you responded? We're having a lady unconscious. Complex approach 1320.
1: Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor podcast.
0: We don't know how severe a brain damage he'll have, but we'll work as what we've got. And that particular night was probably the hardest thing we actually heard.
1: This podcast is about a drowning. Australia is surrounded by ocean and our coastlines are heavily populated, but it is an unfortunate fact that about 50% of drownings in Australia each year occur inland, despite only one third of our population living away from the coastlines. Drownings in dams, creeks, rivers and gorges unfortunately are just as common as those that occur in backyard pools, in city areas or on the beach. Morawa is a small township in the Wheat Belt region of Western Australia, about 400 kilometres north of Perth. It has a small population and a heavy agricultural focus, and it's also the location of a country boarding school. It's at this school a few years back that Chad Sawyer, a year 11 student, 16 years of age, went on a school excursion to the pool with his class. But things didn't go well, and he ended up being dragged from the water, unconscious, not breathing, and with no pulse. Chad's parents, Eddie and Anne, were more than an hour away and Eddie is here today to tell us what happened that day. G'day, Eddie. Hello. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Could you tell me a little bit about Zantippi, which is where you own a large property?
0: Yeah, Zantippi is a a small area of 40 people. It's not a town site at such. It's roughly about 7,000 acres Um, It's uh, wheat, sheep and canola and barley mainly. My house used to be a post office at one stage and phone exchange.
1: And so you grew up there?
0: Yes, I grew up there. It it is a family farm. My dad started there. Mum and dad started there. And uh, I suppose I've been farming for over 30 years there since i stopped
1: does that mean because of your remoteness that you had to um that your kids did school of the air until they got to high school age or homeschooled or how did that work
0: oh no no we 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 had a school bus run that used to come and pick our kids up in the morning and take it to a little town called kalani sometimes it might have up to 40 students that's that's yeah 40 students of year from year one to Year six or seven at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's a lovely, lovely community school, lovely place to live.
1: So let's, let's talk a little bit about Chad. So Chad went to boarding school and he was in Morawa. Would you tell me about that boarding school and, and how it all worked?
0: Uh, yeah, basically when we uh, had to put our kids from into high school, we couldn't put it in our local high school because it was too far away for a bus run. So the only way we could do it is actually send our kids to boarding school. Morawar was, was a country boarding school, which Chad is a country boy and, yeah, it was suited his education more, which he um, thoroughly enjoyed.
1: That's fabulous. Can you tell me what happened on that day at the swimming pool with Chad?
0: It started off as a, a normal working day. Uh, my wife went to Geraldton to visit a friend and I was on the farm getting ready to spread lime on the the paddocks for the coming season. And then I got a phone call from a parent. Basically, their own child was at the school at a a swimming carnival. They were concerned that um, there was something wrong with our child, Chad. He was unconscious, not responding and Something was going wrong with our boy. Wow. we didn't know much what was going on because we didn't know what the situation was. We tried to ring the school, but the actual school wasn't at the pool, so they couldn't correspond to us. what was actually happening with our boy. It was uh, a lot of worrying and my wife Anne was we were ringing each other at the time, so didn't know what to do, what was going on. And then eventually we found out our child was in a drowning, didn't know what to think.
1: Did you learn that from the principal or from those parents?
0: It was basically the principal itself got in contact with me and uh, he was corresponding with us saying that um, they were working on our son and he was basically unconscious and, and they were doing CPR and also they were putting, using the um, defibrillator he was pulled out of the pool, unconscious. We were um, naturally quite concerned what was going on.
1: That's horrible. So you were an hour away. I can't imagine what it's like as a parent to be a long distance from a child and getting that sort of news. Did you immediately jump in your car and head straight for the pool?
0: Uh, we did think about doing that, but they were assured us that they had to put Chad on the uh, raw flying doctor plane and flying to Perth, so there was no point rushing uh, one hour north to to not do anything. It was actually better for us to rush to Perth itself, the other direction, and wait wait for our boy to come to hospital. We uh, just raced down to Perth itself. Still not knowing what was going on and why and what happened. It was very late at night by the time we uh, got to see our boy and yeah, never been in ICU ever before and uh, yeah, seeing seeing the um, it it's quite confronting to see what was what condition he was in. Just was tubes down his throat, helping him breathe and yeah, it was very, very confronting at the time.
1: And was he unconscious?
0: Yes, he was. He was uh, I he was unconscious. Yeah, I think it was in induced coma. Couldn't speak to him or or nothing. Yeah, it's not a, a sight to see a healthy young boy when you last saw him into in ICU in that sort of condition. Yeah.
1: What did the doctors tell you?
0: It didn't actually give us a lot of information first. It was really the second night that we were there that we we found out more information what was going on. The doctors were saying to us he was, um, there's a most likely chance that Chad would be, have some sort of form of brain damage. With the, uh, he basically had over an hour of CPR and also using the Dfib on him to bring his heart rate back up. The likely chance of him being, um, come back as normal was unlikely. He says, we don't know how severe a brain damage he will have, but we'll work as what we've got. And that particular night was probably the hardest thing we actually heard. Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was heart-wrenching just hearing, hearing that, that result.
1: Was the principal in touch with you over that two day period? Were they in touch and did they give you a clearer picture of what had happened at the pool?
0: Yeah, after after a few days, we started getting an idea what was happening. They had a swimming carnival on. My boy wasn't as part of the swimming carnival, but they were jumping in and out of the pool, uh, just playing. So they were just playing away. And then one of the students saw Chad wasn't um, like being normal. And they found him on the side of the pool, He was in the water, but he had his arm leaning against the edge of the pool and they were saying, Chad, Chad, and he wasn't responding. And what happened was a week before they actually went to the pool, the actual school had a first aid course for the students. And if it wasn't for that, and this particular student that found him he gave him the pinch in the shoulder and there was absolutely no response at all. So there was something wrong. And then it was just like the perfect storm is, if it wasn't for the student finding, finding Chad in, in the condition, the pool manager being there at the same time with first aid training, they pulled Chad out of the pool and started CPR. And so they just kept going with CPR for ages. Also, the lucky thing as well is the ambulance was close by. The pool has got a um, a hospital right next door, plus the doctor as well. Everything that needed to be there was there to resuscitate our boy.
1: So there you are at the hospital two days later, and he's still in a bodysuit and so forth, and they're telling you that there's a chance that he's going to have mild or severe brain damage as a consequence of what's happened. Would you tell me what happened with you and Anne that next day when you went back to see him on the third day?
0: It was probably one of the hardest nights we um, ever endure, just thinking what could be our future with our boy. But basically we just, we didn't care what condition he was. All we wanted was our own boy back. We woke up the next morning. My wife Anne, she says, she gets up and she says, I'm going to make myself look beautiful for my boy i'm going to dress up and he's going to pull through this and so we went to the hospital get to the icu again the nurse come come towards us before we could get to chad and they says he's responding he's pulled himself out of his own coma and that was just probably the best news we could ever hear so we went up up to see him and he could blink his eyes and he can move his fingers and squeeze our hand and it was just a miracle it was just from hearing the the worst worst result ever to our boy just coming back back again he was um had a tube in his mouth to help him breathing and he he tried to uh rip the tube out and of course he wasn't allowed to of course and the uh, doctor says well if you can breathe on your own and take deep breaths with you, the tube in, we'll be able to pull the tube out. And here he was, he was just sucking in as much air as he could because he was just breathing in, like he just had the strength to uh, start breathing. And he was just, they took the tube out. And he wasn't quite with it. it, like he was, he couldn't remember what was going on, but still remember his mum and dad and and didn't know what happened and disoriented and confused. Yeah, he yeah, had the uh, oxygen reading thing on his finger and he's waving it around with an orange light and he's waving and he says, what's this for? And he says, um, oh, it's reading oxygen. Oh, 10 seconds later, we'll ask the same question again, over and over and over. And, and he looked at us and, he's, and he was looking at us, He's looking at his mum and he, and he says, oh, you look funny. You look, like your faces look like they're melting. And then he says to his mum, but mum, you still look beautiful in my eyes. We knew we had our boy back. That's so sweet. As the day progressed, he just got better and better. And we were only really in hospital for seven days in total. And to this day, hes we only just celebrated his 21st birthday just last week. And um, he's just a healthy young man.
1: That's fantastic. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-MAX utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, And the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state. And we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. Or the doctors ever tell you um, was there any kind of underlying health condition that had precipitated him being unconscious and not breathing on the side of the pool?
0: Yes, it was. And uh, with, the, with the time he stayed in the, in the hospital, he had a cardiologist. Yep. He had a 24 hour heart monitor test put on him. And so it, basically they worked out he had a condition which is called wolf white. Parkinson' syndrome. Basically, Chad had a uh, an extra pulse in his heart, so the pathway causing two two pulses, which was just doing a rapid heart heartbeat and it sort of just knocked his heart rate out of whack.
1: So am I right then in understanding that he didn't actually drown in terms of water in the lungs and so forth? He essentially had a heart condition that caused his heart to stop while he was in the pool?
0: Basically, yes, yes. Um, I believe it's something that you don't usually find at a young age like that. It's uh, generally found when you're older and uh, it was actually better to find it when you're younger than you are at an older age because um, when you're older, it could be yeah, quite, quite severe.
1: You know, Chad is really lucky, isn't he? Because in addition to being saved and, you know, one hour of CPR and, and so forth to bring him back, but the fact that that could have happened, he could have ended up with lungs full of water and all sorts of things or other things could have happened that could have made the outcome so much worse. He's a very, very lucky boy.
0: He, he always jokes about, uh, here's the quote, you only live once. And he just laughs at that and says, (laughs) I've lived twice.
1: (laughs) Yes. Now, your wife, Anne, used that story of what had occurred with Chad to really promote the fact that people, it's so important that first responders um, know what to do and, and you never know who's going to be a first responder. That's that's what's amazing, uh, particularly when it comes to people that live in country areas or in the bush or the outback or whether it's remote or regional or doesn't really matter where, you could at any time find yourself in that circumstance where you have to jump into action. Could you tell me a little bit about how passionate she was about that?
0: Oh, yeah, we've been out in the country and having first responders or many people that could help someone in need, is uh, quite important. I I also had training when I was younger. First, you need to have refresher courses and Anne and myself um, had a refresher course. And I think also the community itself started uh, getting training for uh, first aid. And I think also the other thing that come into play is uh, more defibrillators started popping up in the area. So just just in the town like next to the Footy Oval at, the, at their local club has got it and that's probably the next most important thing is yeah, the defibrillators itself. So there's getting to be more of those floating around.
1: Now, Annie had said um, twice I myself have been saved by the Royal Flying Doctor Service and without them I wouldn't have survived. Can you tell me what you know of those incidents?
0: Well, the first incident was um, back in 1997 Anne, Anne was pregnant, was our first child, Jack. She was, I think, basically seven months pregnant, roughly. We woke up in the night and Anne just looked down and she says to me, I'm bleeding it. And there was she pulled up the sheets and there was just a big pool of blood in our bed. And uh, that was also quite confronting. Young couple, first baby and basically just put Anne in the car and I just raced into our Dalwollinue hospital. So we were in the hospital there and we um, didn't know what was going on at the time. And I think that's probably the first time I actually fainted because I raced in there and got in the hospital and got Anne in the hospital. And then, then all of a sudden I was a patient I says, don't worry about me, <laughs> Anne's the patient. So, so basically the Royal Flying Doctor got called in and got raced down to Perth and she was admitted to King Edward Morrie Hospital, which is our where the, our babies are born and um, Anne had placenta previa, which is actually the um, placenta falls down or shifts down to the cervix, so the actual to the opening and then starts bleeding from there. And, um, yes, Anne was in, in hospital for, um, for seven weeks. Wow. And, uh, she got out of hospital. Cause usually the cervix doesn't move. So she had to stay in hospital, not move from a bed and all that sort of stuff. And for some miracle, she had a scan and says, Oh, what are you, what are you in here for? Ma'am, and she says, um, "I've got placenta previa." And she says, um, "Well, your placenta's up high, so it's actually moved." Yeah, so it was a long stint in hospital, and and we had our first baby, Jack, born naturally. That was our first first incident. Was um, the Royal Flying Doctor Service?
1: And what was the what was the next one with Anne?
0: Well, um, Anne had breast cancer, and after getting treatment, with... Um, with radium treatment and chemo, her um, immune system was quite low and she basically uh, developed a high temperature and I raced her again to, to the hospital, but uh, she was reluctant and stubborn at the time. She reckoned she didn't feel sick, but with a high temperature and all that sort of stuff, we, we took her in and um, basically the Royal Flying Doctor was called again And she was transferred to Charlie Gardner Hospital. Yeah, she uh, basically had an infection. She was probably pretty close of losing her that time, but and I think that was back in 2008. Yeah, the Royal Flying Doctors saved my um, wife there as well. The uh, Royal Flying Doctors done a lot lot for my family. Basically, um, saved three. Three of my family members, good to be able to have that service.
1: Wow. Okay. So am I right in understanding that even when you were 19, you had uh, your first sort of introduction into the RFDS? What was that about?
0: Yeah, back in um, 1987, it was. My dad, Ron, was um, the chairman of the sub-branch of the St John Ambulance, and um they were having trouble with lighting at night because when, they, when we had to have the plane in, they either had to rally people around with cars and just put cars along the runway to, to be able to see the runway, or the other thing was is they had tins with hessian bags stuffed in them with diesel or kerosene in it and light these, um, these uh, tins to light up the airstrip at night. Which wasn't ideal at the time, and the shire got some funding and and put some funding in, and I think there was also uh, local mining donations and to put uh, an automatic lighting system at our local uh, runway, and so he um, he project managed that that job to put it in, and it was all done voluntary, like where um the community went in went in and helped lay down these lights to um make it better and safer for the community and uh i was i was 19 at the time and uh yeah i never thought that um yeah i'll be benefiting from from that uh, lighting of the airstrip so yeah it's uh surreal that yeah it's um come that way that I end up using it myself so it was um, a pretty good job done at the time.
1: I reckon it was I reckon it was a brilliant job. Eddie they say that they breed them tough in the country and I reckon your family's up there (laughs) Uh, uh, in terms of strength and tenacity and love and endurance I literally my (laughs) eyes well up on it. Um, Your family has been through so much and I I just really want to thank you for having talked to me today and I hope that your family is getting used to the new normal without and around Um, and we do give you our complete condolences for for the loss of her recently. Thank
0: you. Big part of their life.
1: The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Izuzu Ute Australia. Izuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Izuzu Ute online.